Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of the Rocky Mountain Mason podcast. I am Ben Williams, your host, publisher and editor-in-chief of the Rocky Mountain Mason magazine. Today, I'm pleased to bring to you evidence of the Royal Arch degree in early craft masonry. And we will continue our reading of the Agolta Philosophia Libri Tres by none other than Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, Chapter 3, to be precise. And I wanted to say, too, that I was recording this in my kitchen with my faithful hound, Warwick the Beagle. So you may hear some flapping or jingling in the background. And I assure you, this is not the Tintin tabulation of the bells on the high priest's dress. It is Sir Beecham Warwick of Wag, the Duke of Hound. If you like this podcast, please consider becoming a patron. You may do so by visiting our website at www.rockymountainmason.com and subscribe to our magazine, The Rocky Mountain Mason. It contains information of relevance to Masons wheresoever dispersed. It is not restricted to the Rocky Mountain region. And we have another magazine that may interest you, The Esoteric Mason. Check out esotericmason.com for more information. Uh, regrettably, we have been delayed in the production on that issue, the very first inaugural issue, but it is upcoming. And I apologize for the delay. It is entirely my fault. I take full responsibility. Work, COVID-19, and the mundane concerns of the terrestrial globe have keeping me sideways of late. Nonetheless, please sit back or a nice cup of coffee, perhaps, and enjoy episode 21 of the Rocky Mountain Mason podcast. One of the earliest references to offer components of Masonic ritual reminiscent of the third degree, is the Graham Manuscript of 1726. Composed, or at least transcribed, a mere nine years after the formation of the first Grand Lodge in England, the Graham Manuscript includes a catechism with some interesting narrative recognizable to any worthy mason of the contemporary lodge. Much has been written about this manuscript, with intention to its portrayal of subject matter potentially archetypal for the third degree as work today in the 21st century. However, less remarked upon by Masonic scholars are references reminiscent of workings of the Royal Arch degree, thereby suggestive that a prototypical third degree, or raising, was inextricably linked with the communication of what is now known as the Royal Arch. The Graham Manuscript clearly sets forth precepts still used in Lodge today. The first question recorded in that document, From Whence Came You, should be recognizable to any Mason. References to God and St. John follow throughout. There is a consistent Christian thread throughout, which should not be overlooked. The origin, no doubt, of the dedicatory premise of our modern Lodges. 
I've cited some of the manuscript below, where particularly relevant to modern Masonic workings. You may perhaps recognize the ancestry of our own work today. Question. From whence came you? I came from a right worshipful lodge of masters and fellows belonging to God and holy St. John who doth greet all true and perfect brothers of our holy secrets, so do I you, if I find you to be one. Question. I greet you well, brother, craving your name. And there is a lacuna there. Answer. J. And the other is to say, his is B. How shall I know you are a Freemason? By true word, signs and tokens from my entering. How were you made a Freemason? By a true and perfect lodge. What is a perfect lodge? The center of a true heart. How came you into the lodge? Poor and penniless, blind and ignorant of our secrets. What posture did you pass your oath in? I was neither sitting, standing, going, running, riding, hinging, nor flying, naked nor clothed, shod nor barefoot. What were you sworn to? For to heal and conceal our secrets. What other tenets did your oath carry? My second was to obey God and all true squares made or sent from a brother. My third was never to steal lest I should offend God and shame the square. My fourth was never to commit adultery with a brother's wife, nor tell him a willful lie. My fifth was to desire no unjust revenge of a brother, but love and relieve him when it's in my power, it not hurting myself too far. I pass, you have been in a lodge, yet I demand how many lights belong to a lodge. I answer, twelve. What are they? The first three are Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Sun, moon, master mason, square, rule, plum, line, maul, and chisel. I pass you entered, yet I demand if you were raised. Yes, I was. Now there's a lot more, but of course time and space is limited. Um, The catechism ends with a description of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, searching for the secrets Noah purportedly brought with him from the antediluvian world. This leads them to Noah's grave, where they seek to raise the body. And I quote, Shem, Ham, and Japheth went to their father, Noah's grave, for to try if they could find anything about him, for to lead them to the veritable secret which his famous preacher had. For I hope all will allow that all things needful for the new world was in the ark with Noah. Now, these three men had already agreed that if they did not find the very thing itself, that was the first thing that they found was to be to them as a secret. Then, not doubting, but did most firmly believe that God was able and would also prove willing through their faith, prayer and obedience for to cause what they did find, for to prove as veritable to them as if they had received the secret at first from God himself at its headspring. So came to the grave, finding nothing save the dead body, almost consumed away. Taking a grip at a finger, it came away, so from joint to joint, so to the wrist, so to the elbow. So they reared up the dead body, and supported it, setting foot to foot, knee to knee, 
breast to breast, cheek to cheek, and hand to back, and cried out, Help, O Father, as if they had said, O Father of heaven, help us now, for our earthly father cannot. So laid down the dead body again, and not knowing what to do, so one said, Here is yet marrow, and this bone, and the second said, But a dry bone, and the third said, It stinketh, so they agreed for to give it a name, as is known to Freemasonry to this day. With this word, which they appropriated as a placeholder for the secrets lost, enough faith was created that the true secrets were were revealed, as it were, in silence. In the reverent space, this chosen word, now hallowed, created for the influx of holy knowledge. Henceforth, and I quote, works stood, that is, buildings and other endeavors, perhaps, were true, square and level, and withstood the agency of, and I quote again, infernal and squandering spirits. The narrative then turns to Bezalel, who was born with an inspired understanding of the secret titles and pallies of the Godhead. At this point, it is worth observing two things. First, that the raising of Noah was performed on the five points of fellowship, and therefore the word adopted at the grave must be communicable between two people one person at a time. It is perhaps significant also for Christians adopting the Old Testament legitimacy as Bene Noah. Second, we must remark on the introduction of Bezalel, who is significant in modern workings of the Royal Arch degree, at least in the Preston Web work practiced in the United States. However, the main reference that appears reminiscent of mo- modern Royal Arch rituals is the, par- is the phraseology of, and I quote, a treble voice applied to the utterance of some secret knowledge. The word here, treble, means threefold. It's not the choral designation of an unbroken male voice of the upper register. The first reference to this treble voice is in the catechism early on, and I quote, What did you see in Lodge when you did see? I saw truth, the world, and justice, and brotherly love. Where? Before me. What was behind you? Perjury and hatred of brotherhood forever, if I discover our secrets without the consent of a lodge, except that have obtained a treble voice by being entered, passed, and raised, and conformed by three several lodges. And not so except I take the party sworn to be true to our articles. Wherefore, it appears evident that, having been entered, passed, and raised, the secrets were discovered by consent of a lodge and obtained by a treble voice. This cannot be the communication of the word upon the five points of fellowship as illustrated at the graveside and conferred man to man. The second place this phrase, treble voice, is mentioned is in regards to the master one of the lights of the lodge. What are they? That's the twelve jewels. The first three jewels are Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Sun, Moon, Master Mason, Square, Rule, Plum, Line, Maul, and Chisel. Prove all these proper. As for the Blessed Trinity, they afford reason. As for the Sun, he renders light day and night. As for the moon, she is a dark body of water, and doth receive her light from the sun, and is also queen of waters, which is the best of levels. 
As for the master mason, he teaches the trade, and ought to have a treble voice in teaching of our secrets, if he be a bright man, because we do believe into a super-oratory power, for although the seventy had great power, yet the eleven had more, for they chose Matthias in place of Judas. As for square, rule, plumb, line, malt, and chisel, they are six tools that no mason can perform true work without the major part of them. The third and last reference to a treble voice is more clear and definitive, which appears to reference the sounding of a trisyllabic word of resounding virtue. And I quote, Then was born Bezaleel, who was so called of God before conceived in the womb, that this holy man knew by inspiration that the secret titles and primitive polys of the Godhead was preservative, and he built on them, in so much that no infernal squandering spirit does presume to shake his handiwork, so his works became so famous, while the two younger brothers of the aforesaid king, Abloyan, desired for to be instructed by him his noble science, by which he wrought, to which he agreed conditionally that they were not to discover it, without another to themselves to make a treble voice. So they entered oath, and he taught them the theory and practical part of masonry, and they did work. Then was masons' wages called up at that realm. Then was masons numbered with kings and princes. Yet near to the death of Bezaleel, he desired to be buried in the valley of Jehoshaphat, and have carved over him according to his deserving, which was performed by these two princes, and this was carved as follows. Here lies the flower of masonry, superior of many other, companion to a king and to princes, a brother. Here lies the heart all secrets could conceal. Here lies the tongue that never did reveal. So significant in the above is mention of holiness, preservative of edifices and structures erected by Bezaleel, that two princes came to learn of his divine science, but were instructed to find another person to make three, and thus make a treble voice. Only after having a third person with whom to render the treble voice did Basileel impart the secrets of speculative and operative craft masonry. This is contrary to the secret raised at Noah's graveside by his three sons. The chronology of the chosen narrative, Noah, who yielded secrets from the antediluvian world, and then Bezaleel seems to suggest a chronology of raising them the secret imparted from the treble voice. The one is the substitute that Shem, Ham, and Japheth agree to accept whatever they find first at the graveside, much like Solomon in the third degree today, and the other, the true word, communicable only in a treble voice. As is imparted in the lecture of the Royal Arch degree today, the great and ineffable name of God was so powerful it was never spoken except in solemn ceremonies and with the greatest of reverence. The ineffable name has long been held in legend to bestow mighty power upon the utterer. The ground shook when the high priest uttered it three times on the Day of Atonement in the sanctuary of the tabernacle. To take the ineffable name in vain was a sin desecrating the holy word could divorce it of its power because the word was set apart in fact the word holy in hebrew is etymologically linked with the verb to set aside 
to take the Lord's name in vain is still frowned upon, significantly in both the order of the high priesthood for the past excellent high priests and, and the rite of perfection, the 14th degree, in the Scottish rite. The sanctity the word required meant it could not be spoken, except in the most proper and emergent of situations. Therefore, the rendering of the name in three, by three, was arguably undertaken for the purposes of instruction, to intone and thus invoke the indwelling of deity. When this act was performed with the due sanctity, and the specialness secrecy was meant to impart, the effect must have been profound. While there is nothing definitive in ritualistic terms we can point to in the Graham manuscript, indicative of the royal arch degree as we know and practice it today, the cloth from which the degree was cut is clearly being stitched upon the loom of early craft masonry. It is also pertinent to note that the royal arch, when it was properly codified in the mid-18th century, was accessible only to past masters of a lodge a caveat still operative today by virtue of the virtual past master's degree in the capitular rite, here in the U.S. at least. There are other references to material now peculiar to the Royal Arch degree from 17th and 18th century literature on the subject, but we will have to leave those for another time. Suffice it to say, though, material now practiced as the Royal Arch degree remains historically some of the most influential and important teachings formative of the craft. Now, before we begin on our reading of the three books of occult philosophy by Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa von Nettensheim, I wanted to pose a question for your contemplation regarding the excerpts I just read from the Graham manuscript. What do you think was meant by the term, or the phrase, we do believe in a super-auditory power? I would also ask you to contemplate what was meant when Bezalel was said to have known the titles and primitive polys of the Godhead. And now, not all that glitters is gold or mammon. I knew a man who counterfeited the sun, the vessel empty, the metal undone, a priest of Ammon, a charlatan, and me, a simple harlequin, between the pillars all in ruin, some things never change. Heaven and earth never joined, salt sold, mana coined, all things beneath the moon, vestigial, a residue where truth shone, the word lost without attribution. Some things never change. Your hands must be heavy beneath those rings, hiding white knuckles and bee stings, heavy metal for light work on a fool's errand. 
The devil eats his children as fools must prey on fools, bit by bit. But truth is better than lies. Truth needs nothing, friend. But lies need truth to counterfeit. Chapter 3 Of the Four Elements, Their Qualities and Mutual Mixtions There are four elements, and original grounds of all corporeal things, fire, earth, water, air, of which all elemented inferior bodies are compounded, not by way of heaping them up together, but by transmutation and union and when they are destroyed, they are resolved into elements. For there is none of the sensible elements that is pure, but they are more or less mixed, and apt to be changed one into the other, even as earth become, becoming dirty and being dissolved becomes water, and the same being made thick and hard becomes earth again. But being evaporated through heat passeth into air, and that being kindled passeth into fire." and this, being extinguished, returns back again into air, but being cooled again after its burning, becomes earth, or stone, or sulphur, and this is manifested by lightning. Plato was also of that opinion, that earth was wholly changeable, and that the rest of the elements are changed, as into this, so into one another successively. But it is the opinion of the subtler sort of philosophers that earth is not changed, but relented and mixed with other elements which do not dissolve it, and that it returns back into itself again. Now every one of the elements hath two special qualities, the former whereof it retains as proper to itself, in the other, as a mean, it agrees with that which comes next after it. For fire is hot and dry, earth dry and cold the water cold and moist, the air moist and hot. And so, after this manner, the elements, according to two contrary qualities, are contrary one to the other, as fire to water, and earth to air. Moreover, the elements are upon another account opposite to one another, for some are heavy, as earth and water, and others are light, as air and fire. Wherefore the Stoics called the former passives, but the latter actives. And yet, once again, Plato distinguisheth them after another manner, and assigns to every one of them three qualities, viz. to the fire, brightness, thinness, and motion, but to the earth, darkness, thickness, and quietness. And according to these qualities the elements of fire and earth are contrary. But the other elements borrow their qualities from these, so that the air receives two qualities of the fire, thinness and motion, and one of the earth, viz. darkness. In like manner water receives two qualities of the earth, darkness and thickness, but one of fire, viz. motion. But fire is twice more thin than air, thrice more movable, and four times more bright. And the air is twice more bright, thrice more thin, and four times more movable than water. Wherefore water is twice more bright than earth, thrice more thin, and four times more movable. As therefore the fire is to the air, so air to the water, and water to the earth. 
and again, as the earth is to the water, so the water to the air, and the air to the fire. And this is the root and foundation of all bodies, natures, virtues, and wonderful works. And he which shall know these qualities of the elements and their mixtures shall easily bring to pass such things that are wonderful and astonishing, and shall be perfect in magic. Well, thank you for listening this far. If you have any feedback regarding the content of this podcast, please feel free to email me. You may do so at ben at rockymountainmason.com. That's B-E-N at rockymountainmason.com. Also, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, August 26th, you might be interested in a talk I am giving this evening for the Grand Lodge of California online for the Quoro Coronati Correspondence Circle Lecture Series. This is a historical presentation on the influence of Freemasonry on the founding of Denver specifically, and then also the territory and ultimately state of Colorado. You may find out more information by searching for QCCC Lecture Series, Grand Lodge of California. our show thank you again for listening if you would like to become a patron and support the rocky mountain mason please visit www.rockymountainmason.com click on our patron link patreon.com you can give five dollars a month if you're feeling generous ten bucks that's really a cup of coffee if you think the rocky mountain mason podcast is worth one cup of coffee a week yeah maybe it's a habit you could cut back on reward us for our efforts. Also, please consider subscribing to our magazine, www.rockymountainmason.com. And until next time, take care and Godspeed. Godspeed.